Open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. Our focus this morning will be on 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. We'll be reading 419 through 514. 1 Peter 4, 19 through 514. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our drunk minds with the cares of this world that in arrogance try to work things out on our own. And so I pray we'd humble ourselves under your sovereign hand, casting our anxieties on you. And we would know 
your peace this morning. In the strong name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the Bible's authors are as poor of Scripture writers as we are Scripture readers. We often read the Bible as though it were a buffet, picking out the bits that we like. Some of this here, some of that over there. And so it is that mac and cheese comes to sit alongside lo mein. But the biblical authors prepared a feast that makes sense, where one course naturally leads to the other. There's a logic to the meal and how it's planned. So as you come to the end of this letter, you might think that Peter's just filling up the empty space on his plate with whatever else he thinks he might like. Just got what he wanted in, and, and now he's just filling it up. Or he's like, uh, he's come to, to the end of his letter, and he realizes, I have some extra space on this parchment. And so he's like the poor preacher who looks at his watch and realizes, I've got 20 more minutes. And then proceeds to fill it up with the same rote material, the same favorite bits that you've heard again and again. Peter began a new section in 5.1, but that new section begins with the word so, linking it to the previous one, where Peter has been unfolding the theme of this letter, nicely summarized in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so Peter exhorts the elders to do the specific good of shepherding the flock despite present suffering in hope of future glory. And he ends his exhortation to elders holding forth this promise of glory in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then in verse 5, Peter turns his attention to the church. He begins this exhortation to the church saying, Likewise, in the same way that he exhorted the elders, despite present suffering, in hope of future glory, do this good. Now he's exhorting the church, despite present suffering, in hope of future glory. Here's again this good to which you're called in Christ. And he ends by holding forth the same hope of glory to them in verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter has not neatly packed the suitcase so far to come to the end and realize, hey, I got some more space. What else could I cram in here? Even every element in his closing, verses 12 through 14, in every element of his closing, Peter relentlessly returns to the theme of this letter. So let's endeavor to be as tenacious in our Bible reading and Bible listening as Peter was in his writing. Peter's just told these elders to shepherd the church and then turning to the church in verse 5, he exhorts first a segment of the church. He exhorts them not to buck against that authority. And now Peter commands all 
in verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Anything we are that is commendable, we are in Christ. There's no room for boasting. 2, 9, and 10, we were called out of darkness into His light. We were once not a people. Now we are a people. There's no room for boasting. Whatever gifts you may possess are gifts. They were given. And they were given to you not to stand over your brother and boast, but to stand under and alongside your brother and serve. And so in 4, 10, and 12, Peter told us, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Paul asks the Corinthians, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Your gifts were given to you to serve and to glorify God, not for you to be served and to be glorified as God. In 122, Peter commanded us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's this heart that's been purified by God's regenerating work. And from that pure heart, we're to love one another earnestly. In 3.8, Peter commanded us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Love and humility always walk hand in hand. They can't walk by themselves. They always walk together. Paul said that love does not boast. It is not arrogant. The only kind of love that can walk by itself is sinful self-love, pride. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And the reason we're to clothe ourselves in humility is that God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. Proverbs 3.34 God is a holy and just God to whom all glory belongs. All arrogance against your brother is pride against God. How you relate to man is an expression of how you relate to God. We are glory thieves. We are so arrogant as to think that we can break into the treasury of the omnipotent and omniscient God and steal that which is most precious to Him. So to, to get a grip at how ugly, how serious sin is, with pride at its every root, consider how zealous the Father is that the Son be glorified in all above all. Consider how zealous the Son is, that the Father be glorified in all above all. Consider how zealous the Spirit is as to the Son's ambition for the Father to be glorified in all above all, and the Father's ambition for the Son to be glorified in all above all. 
and realize that whenever you try to rob glory, you're trying to seek, whenever you're trying to take glory for yourself, you have to rob that. And you're robbing it from the Trinitarian God. In arrogance, we set ourselves against God and thus God against us. Can anything be more foolish? He opposes the proud. The gifts that we have, we have from the Spirit, in the Son, from the Father. And we would use them for self-promotion. But this is only the threat. There's a promise here. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And Peter's going to unfold this grace. But as he does so, he changes gears a bit. There are two commands concerning humility here. We're to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. And second, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The first command is manward. The second command is Godward. We've already seen that these two things relate. How you relate to man is how you relate to God. But what you're seeing here is that the way to rectify the issue is not, I need to relate humbly to man, and then it means I'll be relating rightly to God. The way to deal with it is relate humbly to God, and then you'll relate correctly to man. But still, the second command is a consequence of the first. Clothe yourself in humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, therefore, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And what does it mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Does it mean responding to suffering as Peter's instructed us in this letter? Remember that these trials, this fiery trial that the church is enduring is God's will, 317, 419. It's God's mighty hand that's upon them in this. Remember that this suffering is spoken of as judgment, not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of purification. Comes to them from God's sovereign hand. Is that what Peter intends? I think he has that in mind, but I think his point is much more simple. God's hand is almighty, all powerful. Therefore, humble yourself under it, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you are proud, this almighty hand opposes you. But if you're humble, this almighty hand cares for you. The reason we are to do this, the motivation is, is so that at the proper time, He may exalt us. If God gives all things, only He can give glory. You cannot rob glory, but you may receive glory. Man was made for glory. The problem is we seek it improperly. We want to take it in such a way that magnifies ourselves rather than receive it in a way that magnifies God. Man's sin is that he wants glory as God rather than as a man. 
we're seeking the wrong kind of glory. Humility means knowing we're not God. We are the creature, He the Creator. We are adopted children, He our gracious Father. Humility means knowing we are sinners deserving nothing more than an eternal hell. And in grace and mercy, because of Christ, He's adopted us into such privileges to be exalted by the God we've so sinned against. But there is a particular way that Peter intends for us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. How are we to do this? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Trusting that God's hand is all-powerful, we are to cast our anxieties on Him. Peter's alluding to Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on Yahweh and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. This casting our cares upon Him expresses not only that He's a powerful powerful God who can deal with these things, but that He's our Father who loves us. Casting our cares upon Him not only magnifies His power, but His love. We're to do this not only because of His mighty hand, but because of His magnanimous heart. He cares for us. You see what grace there is here? We have not only the hand of God Almighty, we have the heart of the Father who gave His Son. Remember Jesus asked, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Our Father not only desires to give, He's able to give. His heart is as big as His hand, and His hand is as big as His heart, and both are infinite. Hear the measure of the Father's grace as Paul put it in the form of a question. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He's given you His Son, and in giving you His Son, He gave you the greatest and highest thing He possibly could. And not only that, but giving in giving you the Son who is Lord over all with all things under His feet, with whom you are counted a brother and an heir in giving you Christ. He's given you all. You don't need to try to take and rob. You have abundantly in Christ. These things are yours. You may not take them in pride, but you may receive them with the humble empty hands of faith in Christ. Now ask yourself as you see this, what anxieties might Peter have in mind? It's very clear, isn't it? It's the anxieties of pilgrims and exiles 
as they make their way home on the hard road of suffering. And as you do so, know that there's grace for the humble and that the Father intends to make you rich in Christ, sharing in His sufferings, that you might share in His glory, giving you all things. As Peter turns from humility within the church to watchfulness towards our enemy outside, in verse 8, ask yourself if the subject change is as radical, as as abrupt as it might appear at first glance. Both of these commands flow from the likewise. Both of these commands are because of present suffering and future glory, I exhort you in these ways. So they're both flowing from that. But is there a more natural transition from the previous command, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God towards Be watchful, be sober. The anxious mind is a clouded mind. It's a drunk mind with the cares of this world. Jesus makes the connection between anxieties and watchfulness when He warns the disciples in Luke 21... Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. That's a drunkenness of the heart. Weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This jives with 4.7 where Peter admonished us, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers." This is the fourth time in this letter that Peter's called for this kind of way of thinking. It's the third time he's explicitly used this term, sober-minded. In 113, we saw that being sober-minded means setting our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Setting our hope on that grace will relieve anxieties Setting your hope on that world that doesn't perish will relieve your anxieties that are tied to this world that is perishing. Though this is the third time Peter's told us to be sober-minded, it's the first time he's done so in connection to our enemy. There's an understood implicit because in between the two sentences of verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Because your adversary. The devil is the church's adversary. This word has a legal flavor to it. It would refer to someone's opponent in a court of law. Revelation 12.10 speaks of the futility of Satan's prosecution. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. And though our adversary cannot sway the judge, he knows that he can cause us to falter. Satan loves to paint sin as ugly as he does attractive. So long as he gets to paint without Christ. He loves to paint it as ugly as he does attractive. He may bring forth the truth of your sin's guilt. The truth of your sin's ugliness. Of the condemnation that it deserves. Of the curse that rightly falls upon it, but he will not speak of Christ. Satan is no clean prosecutor. His concern is not for justice and righteousness and truth. He will use truth only insofar as it's convenient for him. His aim is to steal, kill, and destroy In contrast, the Spirit's conviction is to restore and build up and heal. Sober-mindedness means resisting our adversary. Verse 9. And resisting him means being firm in faith. Now, our faith is not in our works. Our faith is in Christ. And the way to resist Satan is in this kind of humble posture of dependence upon Christ. Whenever you've sinned, whenever you're going through the midst of the trial and you doubt, don't look within, look to Christ. The Christ who bore your condemnation. The Christ who suffered for sinners so that trusting in Him they would be reconciled to the Father. Look to Christ and you will find liberating conviction. You will find conviction that goes so much deeper knowing that you've sinned against one who so loved you, but He has loved you savingly. God's conviction will wound deeper and yet it will wound surgically such that you find healing at the hands of the great physician. Peter no doubt knew the despair that the accuser could bring. Having denied his Lord three times, we're told that he wept bitterly. You wonder if he could ever walk Wake, having heard the cock crow without thinking of that day. And yet our Lord assured him he knew what Peter would do. And yet he interceded for him. Luke 21, 22, excuse me. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired, 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. The fight against our accuser is a fight for faith. Faith in Christ. This means that we shouldn't be obsessed with the enemy in our war. We should be obsessed with Christ. Whenever this lion aims to devour a soul, he leaps for the neck of faith. And the way you resist him is to stand firm in this faith in Christ. In a day with much lunacy regarding spiritual warfare, do you see how simple it is as it's set before you here? The fight against our enemy is a fight for faith in Christ. So look to Christ. Look to His Word which holds Him forth and all the promises that are said to be yes and amen in Him. And this is it. Believe. This is the way you resist. This is the way you fight. Believe. Resisting Satan is not done by some special method or tactic that some man has concocted. It's done by faith in Christ. God's purpose in a trial is to purify and test our faith. 1, 6-7, Satan wants to destroy our faith. So sheep of God flock, look to Christ. Look to the Christ knowing He's already defeated this lion. This serpent has been crushed underneath His heel at the cross. See Jesus and know His faith didn't fail even as He walked to the cross. His faith didn't fail and He is all your righteousness. Believe and rest and trust that your right standing with God is found completely in Christ. And know that He now stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. And His plea is one of simply presenting Himself to the Father as your representative. The Good Shepherd will gather His sheep. He will not lose one. Whenever Peter tells us to be sober-minded, resisting, keeping the faith, he does have a particular kind of knowledge in mind here. You're to do this knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, why does Peter want us to know this? Resist knowing this. This is part of the sober-mindedness. Know this. Why does Peter want us to go into this war knowing that our brothers are suffering in this way? How does that help us? He told you in 4.12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is being experienced by your brothers 
This isn't strange. Satan, I know you've sensed this. In the midst of a trial, has told you, this is strange. This is something that's just against you. You're not one of a sheep. He's abandoned you. He doesn't care for you. Your sin is not forgivable. And Peter's telling us, fight for faith. This isn't strange. This doesn't speak to the Father being against you. The Father intends for you to share in Christ's sufferings that you might share in His glory. And as a conclusion to these exhortations, Peter holds forth the promise of that glory yet again, as he so often has done in this letter. Verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now we suffer. We suffer for a little while. And it's after we've suffered that God will confirm, strengthen, establish us. Referring to that day when He exalts us. That day when we come into this glory. Our suffering is said to be a little while because this glory that we're already partly participating in is eternal. Heaven has recalibrated our clocks. What used to seem long isn't so long anymore in light of the eternity of glory we are promised. Paul considered the sufferings of this present time not worthy with comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us, Romans 8. Or elsewhere in Corinthians, he spoke of this light momentary affliction as preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You're called to this eternal glory in Christ. Whenever God saves you, effectually calling you out of darkness into light, 2 and verse 9, He's calling you into the light of His eternal glory. And suffering is the calling insofar as it's the road He has intended to get you to that eternal home. 2.21, Peter told the Christians who were slaves and us by implication... That they're called to suffer for good. But you're not called to suffer as an end in itself. You're called to suffer, sharing in Christ's sufferings, that you might share in His glory. Suffering is the road towards glory. The suffering is limited in duration and intensity. But the glory is eternal and infinite. And thinking of this glory, Peter cannot but burst with doxology. Verse 11. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God who rules our days of suffering will rule our our glory eternally. Praise be to Him. 
And now we come to the closing of this first letter. And the closing has three parts. And in each part, Peter manages to return to his theme in some way. First, Peter commends the letter's deliverer in verse 12. Now, some argue that Silvanus here is Silas, Paul's companion. And that's possible. I just don't see any reason to be dogmatic about it. I'm sure there were other Christians named Silas or Silvanus. More important, slightly so, is how Silvanus served Paul. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. So some argue that Silvanus served as Paul's amanuensis, a secretary, a stenographer that would write down the letter as Peter dictated, and very well he could. And it's very likely that Peter did use an amanuensis in writing this letter. I don't think that's what Peter's getting at here, though. The commendation, I think, speaks to this, that it's by Silvanus that this letter is being delivered to them. And I think you see this elsewhere in the Scriptures, is, is that the idea of these commendations is that whenever Paul sent one, someone to deliver this letter, they weren't simply handing the letter over and then walking back. They were sent to minister the letter. They were sent as an apostolic delegate. And that's why he's commending him. He's a faithful brother as so far as I regard him. When he delivers this letter, trust me, that he's communicating to you the intent of this letter. And in so doing, he has to speak to the intent of the letter. Verse 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now, what grace is the true grace of God? Is it the grace of 113, the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is it the grace of 219, the, the grace of suffering for good that we might be rewarded? Is it the grace of 410, the grace of which we are stewards that we might serve one another unto the glory of God? Is it the grace of 5-5, the grace that's given to the humble? No, surely it's the grace of 510. The grace of the God of all grace. It's all the above. It's all this grace as Peter's been putting it forward to us in this letter. And what this does is this serves as a seal of authenticity from the apostle. I tell you that this is the true grace of God. And then he exhorts us one more time. Stand firm in it. Believe. Trust, endure, persevere in your faith. Second, Peter sends greetings. First, from she who is at Babylon. This is the church at Rome. Why does he speak of, of the church at Rome in these terms? She who is at Babylon. The idea that this was code, lest someone know that Peter's writing about there is a church at Rome. Uh, that's unfounded. She who is at Rome. Why does he pick that terminology? She who is at Rome. Well, Peter, again, is drawing on this rich Old Testament imagery. What was Israel doing in Rome? She was in exile. The next phrase makes it clear what Peter wants to get at here. The church at Rome, she who is at Rome, Babylon, who is likewise chosen. How did Peter begin this letter? Addressing them as elect exiles. She who is at Babylon, your fellow saints who are suffering the same things, this isn't strange. She greets you. Mark here is most likely John Mark, 
the author of the gospel, which then Peter stands behind, who Peter regards as a son. Peter then calls for the church to greet one another with the kiss of love. Uh, This was a cultural expression. It's a little bit too European for us. That doesn't exempt us from the principle of showing tangible, physical, yes, appropriate, but physical love and affection for one another as we are a family in Christ. If those kind of expressions of affection are appropriate in a biological family, they're all the more, not less, all the more appropriate in the family of God. Third, Peter concludes with a short benediction in verse 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So short a word of blessing, but could have any other word been more meaningful to these saints going through a fiery trial? By keeping it so short and simple, there is this laser sharp focus on the blessing. Objectively, they have peace with God, but Peter's intent by this letter is not just to objectively know that, but to enjoy that peace. He began this letter praying, 1 and verse 2, May God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. This apostolic word still stands for pilgrims today. Saints, as we have been privileged to so richly meditate upon the present suffering and the future glory of the saints, this simple conclusion cannot be improved on. And so I leave you with this word. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray our souls in the midst of this hard pilgrimage home are at peace, resting in faith, standing firm in faith because of Christ and in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.